Welcome to the Truth to Power Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan. And with us today is Gaurav Venkateshwar. We just listened to Always True, uh, one of his songs. Um, raised in Chicago and based out of New York, Gaurav finds inspiration from his South Asian heritage as well as music genres around the world. Gaurav has studied Indian and Western classical music, along with music composition, jazz, and electroacoustic music. Gaurav is also the founding member of Chai Town, a... Um, Collegiate Indian American uh, Capella Group from the University of Illinois at Urbania Champaign that uh, specializes in missing, mixing South Asian and Western music. Welcome, Gaurav. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So why don't we start off like dovetailing our, our last uh, guest uh, two weeks ago? Talked a lot about we talked a lot about storytelling and the power of uh, stories in our society. Why don't we start off by talking about your connection with storytelling and music and how. Uh, the, the you are able to bring bring that space into music, yeah, yeah, sure. So, um, I think art arts in general are are inherently about telling stories, um, as is music. I think uh, my music uh, 
coming from from me as an Indian American um, inherently tells the story of, of being in, uh, an Indian American immigrant, inherently tells the stories of uh, my background, uh, having studied Indian classical music, how I try to bring that into my music, um, and how I try to fuse that in um, into uh, kind of, as you just heard, kind of a, a pop sound or a Western sounding uh, genre. Um, and that inherently is, is a, a way of telling stories. Um, that specific song that we heard was, was me telling a story of being in New York. I'm from Chicago, a big metropolis, but New York is an even bigger metropolis. Mm. Um, when I, I've been here for about eight years now, but when I first came here for many years, it was just um, such a grind in such a way. I also was doing business school part-time and, and working full-time. So it's quite a grind. Um, but it's, it's a city that was pretty intense. And I think now I'm finally finding my feet here. Right, um, right. But I think that the, the, the story in that piece was just around stepping into this world, which is, which is really shiny in New York, but there's also this like grit and, 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 and the grind that you go through every day. Um, but I always had someone home uh, to come home to. Uh, I'm happily married uh, and, and just kind of thinking about having, having a, even, even if you're not married, just to have like a safe space to come home to um, and, and a place of comfort to find your center and your own truth. Yeah, yeah, and also the um, in regards to stories, the power of mythology and the power of our cultural heritage is is often told through stories and communicated through stories, and and how we find that deep truth in those stories and, and connect with something that uh, is uh, eternal or or um, uh, universal and such. Uh, if you could talk a little bit about kind of how you bring in and maybe the cultural heritage as well into your music or into your uh, life or. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I think um, Indian music is is very rich. It's so you know, it, we have roots going back over two thousand years. You can you can go back and see the heritage, um, and you know, our mythology is rich. You know, there's it's actually descended from Indo-European mythology. So you have cognates in in um, Hindu. You know, Indian Indian mythology has cognates in Greek and, and Germanic mythology and all that stuff. So we're really ancient if you think about. Uh, and we're just continuing that tradition, mm. um, musically speaking. Um, again, I, I've learned Indian classical music, uh, while it's very distinct from Western classical music. It's um, there. There are ways, there are entry points in which music can be fused together. Uh, it's very melodic, um, and with with Western music, there's a lot of harmony. Um, I think the strength of Western music is in its harmonies and its ability ability to have chords and um, and, and and layer that on top of a melody. And then I think within Indian music, there's so much intricate um, intricate uh, melody that can be brought in and fused in together. So when you when you when you mix the two, um, it creates something beautiful. That's from from both sides. I would say. Yeah, yeah. I understand. Uh, you know. Um... If we could talk a little bit about kind of a little bit more in depth about the systems and how they're different and how they and you're able to mix them because people that may not realize that Indian music has like uh, I, I'm I'm only vaguely familiar of like ragas and all right. these different ways in which Indian music is organized that is vastly different uh, from Western music but you're able to find points of contact you know in the Wikipedia article for ragas it says there's no Western equivalent but we were talking as a musician you're able to find those 
points of contact that Definitely. I'm able to, if you talk a little bit about that, yeah. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, Indian classical music is, is, as you said, based on ragas. What, what is a raga? A raga is basically um, a scale, so a set of notes. So, like, in, in Western music, you learn, like, if you learn piano, you're just going to learn uh, to play in middle C, and you'll learn, um, if you play a simple scale, it'll be the, the major scale. da 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 that's kind of the major scale. Um, but then you have minor scales. So that's, that's, that's a minor scale. Uh, and then you can have all sorts of permutations. Um, so a raga is a scale in that sense. So we have you know, different permutations of, uh, you have 12 chromatic notes in a scale, but you can have different permutations um, of, of which notes you're going to use uh, within a raga. Uh, and so when you when you're singing a specific uh, piece that's based on a raga, you're using only the notes of that scale. But it also goes a step further because there there's more color added to. Um, you can have multiple ragas that use the same notes, but they sound completely different because um, the way the combinations of notes you would use within that raga uh, would would make it sound different and have uh, bring about different kinds of um, aesthetic nuances. Mm. And so. Um, you know, just by the fact that I was able to explain, I was just saying the, the, what the scale kind of without, you know, I was just saying the scale out, um, those scales you can have, uh, in Western music, there are modes, uh, which are, there's such a thing as modal music. Um, and you can hear that a lot of times in medieval music. It's, it's very, very obvious, but, um, I often explain, uh, ragas in terms of what, what's the closest, uh, mode in Western music. It's not perfect. Um, but then once you have that, you, you know, at the end of the day, ragas are made of notes and, and uh, chords are made up of notes. And if you can find uh, the right chords to go with a certain notes in a, in a raga, um, you know, that's where you can find ways to bring in the harmony that Western music has to offer. I, mm, I often, when yeah. I hear Indian music, I feel like it, inherently you can hear chords because even though it's very melodic um, you know, notes, I mean, not getting too geeky about theory but like yeah. you know notes, you want to resolve tension between notes when you're um when you're doing music and that's that's part of the joy of music is hearing notes resolve or not being resolved and um that's very present and obvious in, in western music but you can hear that definitely in indie music as well yeah and i understand with having listened to you perform i understand you use like uh electronic you use some kind of synthesizer how do you actually do this talk a little bit about kind of when you're actually performing what instruments you use and how you are able to uh you know, blend this, blend these. It seems it's very complex from the layperson's perspective. Right. But uh, like, yeah, the, yeah. How you able to? Do yeah, that? I mean, I, I mean, I my joy is producing music and um, like composing and recording. So, um, when I perform, sometimes I can just you know I, I have a keyboard, um, where I can just play the like, piano or, or whatever sound and just play as if I'm playing a piano, which is pretty simple. Um. But when I have more complex music, like the one you know, we just heard, that's that is pre-recorded. But um, I use I use my computer, like Logic Studio, which is one of the um, softwares available on the Mac. Uh, I use that to really as my canvas to put. Yeah, you know, I can lay down one track for beats, one track for uh, chords, and one track for bass, and like multiple layers of basses and chords, and um, you know, record my voice. You know, in, in and then add process out with multiple effects. Oh, um, cool. I think people sometimes, uh, there's probably some people that like more natural sounding things. I, I just view the voice as another instrument. 
um, technology is another instrument. Yeah. Uh, how can you process that and make it sound interesting and not just um, not just process, but interesting as well? Yeah, I think the effect is very powerful and emotionally resonant. Uh, and we'll be talking a little bit more about now we can move into like that, that was just a checklist for our music geeks out there <laughs> to understand a little bit of the complexities and the and the uh, systems involved with, you know, mixing East and Western music is not as simple as it seems. You know, it's, it's very it requires a lot of skill, it requires a lot of navigation, especially right. producing the kind of sound that you're producing. It's not just a question of hodgepodge. You know, it's a very yeah, analytic yeah. If you want to make yeah. it sound uh, uh, authentic or, or different, definitely. Yeah. Mm. And we were talking a little bit about kind of the stories of uh, Vedantic traditions, mm -hmm. Ramayana, the Mahabharata, the two major epics yeah. that uh, we both learned through our march at the Katha, Definitely. which is the comic book, the Indian comic book that uh, makes uh, a lot of these uh, esoteric texts like Puranas very accessible. Yep. All these stories that people, scholars may read through the Puranas, we learn through comic book form. Definitely. So if you talk a little bit about kind of how your exposure to... Um, Indian mythology and how your commentary and your as an adult you're able to yeah yeah that. I think uh, growing up uh, again growing up here I remember my <laughs> the first first time I saw this comic book was uh, in in our Hindu temple in Chicago Lamont uh, it was the first kind of uh, traditional Hindu temple built out there at least that I that I knew of um, and I saw a comic book around Ganesha the the elephant god who we pray to in Hinduism as the and the remover of obstacles and every kind of religious thing starts with uh, with him. Uh, and I already knew about Ganesha as a as a god, but I don't think I knew the story till I read this comic book. Mm. Um, and then I just fell in love with it. I um, have a huge collection. It's at my parents' house back in Chicago, uh, but I, I I just dove into it. And I think part of it's the medium. And we talked about storytelling. And you know, I I wasn't much of a, like a book reader, um, but I loved reading these comics and. I think now as an adult, I can be like, that's fine. That's another way of, of reading stories. But um, maybe back then I used to feel like, oh, I should be reading books. Yeah. Um, but anyways, like the, 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 uh, the medium was amazing to get me exposed to these epics, Ramayana, various versions. There's also like lots of stories that the Ramayana has been written by different authors um, throughout history. So there's like, sometimes there's a Marchitakatha uh, volumes focused on a specific story that you don't get in, in one version, but you get another version. I learned a lot about history. Um, and so it really drew me into this world of like, you know, Indian superheroes, if, uh, if you will. Um, and I was very into understanding like all aspects of my mythology. And as I've grown up, uh, grown older, you know, I can look back and, and realize, you know, there are, there's a rich history, rich culture, but there's also some backwards, um, ideas that need to be updated. Uh, I think most recently, you know, I dabble in art as well. And so I, I thought about the story of the Ramayana. There's, um, so again, Ra Ramayana is about this prince Rama, uh, who's the god that we worship in, in Hinduism. Rama and his, his consort Sita, so his wife, uh, they're kind of worshipped as a couple, divine couple. Um, the, the, the cliff notes is Rama and Sita were exiled from their kingdom for 14 years. Uh, during that time, Sita was, uh, was actually kidnapped by a demon Ravana and then Rama had to go find her and uh, made friends with these monkeys uh, and and other other animals. Found her in the kingdom uh, that she was kidnapped to, uh, that the, that the demon Ravana lived in in Lanka, uh, now the island of Sri Lanka, according to our mythology. Mm. Um, and then he vanquished the king Ravana, the demon, and then brought her back home. and And that's that's the the epic in a in a very 
condensed form is actually really big not only in South Asia but in Southeast Asia. It's 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 uh, in Indonesia, Malaysia. There's um, it's been celebrated for centuries. Um, one of the things that happens when in, in traditional mythology when Rama rescues Sita, she's she's endured this ordeal of being kidnapped, uh, forced against her will in someone else another man's house. Um, instead of just receiving her and just like everything's happily ever after, let's go home. He rescues her, but it's like I can't return home with you because you've stayed in another man's house. How do I know that you're pure? And so she has to prove her purity by walking through uh, a pit of fire, uh, and she she walks through it unscathed, and that proves her purity. And then they go home um, happily ever after, so to speak. But we, you know, that that's that's the legend. Um, but why does it have to be the legend? It's clearly a, a one-sided. It's clearly um, very patriarchal in, mm. in, in its notion that uh, a woman, first of all, like uh, the woman is questioned. And I think even in today's culture where if a woman undergoes any kind of assault, um, we still have this this tragedy where women are questioned or what, you know, what, you know, we just went through it, uh, you know, in, in the, uh, American politics, like, I think the last couple of months, we, we really were exposed to it a lot. Um, women are questioned, not believed. Um, so they have to prove themselves and it's, it's mm -hmm. an uphill battle. So why should, you know, why did Sita have to go through that? You know, when we're worshiping this God who's supposed to represent everything good. And, and frankly, we're worshiping her as a goddess too, and she shouldn't have had to do that. Um, and so I, I drew this this panel of um, where Sita is kind of standing, floating in the air like a radiant goddess, and Rama has is bowing down to her because he realized uh, this is my own interpretation of making up my own mythology. He realized that he was wrong in in making her endure this, and he is bowing down to her and apologizing to her. Um, and I think in that, and he's not he's not like a coward or he's not meek he's he's in strength apologizing and i think that's a great message to send to to men you know young men is like there's nothing wrong with admitting your faults and and mm -hmm. um there's actually a, in in the movie black panther there's a similar scene where like a man is bowing down to a woman in a very similar way yeah. accepting that he's wrong uh, so i think that's cool that you know, i'm uh, I just saw that as well but you know this the idea that um you can admit you can be a, and, and he's a god so he's uh he's divine and admitting his faults and that's a great i think way to update the story where that he you know he made her go through something he had a wrong notion he he was flawed in that notion um and she's redeemed and you know she shouldn't have to go through that and and women should uh you know the next generation of indian women indian american wherever you you know wherever you're from should not have to feel like you have to prove yourself or you mm. know defend yourself that way you should just uh, you should be able to uh, not have to put up with that. Yeah, and I think that it's important that when we talk about these uh, so-called sacred spaces, you know, what we think of as sacred space, and I'm mm -hmm. putting that under kind of a um, question because, you know, we think of sacred spaces and we think about religions and we think about these things, you know, have to be interpreted in a certain way, very rigid. Right. A lot of times we associate with, with the idea of sacredness, but as devotees or as followers or as people who have um, come out of these traditions, it's so important for us to be in dialogue right. with that tradition. Definitely. And what I'm hearing from you is that, um, you know, we're kind of taking those symbols, taking those places of sacredness, and we're kind of making it our own. We're kind of in communication dialogue with it so that then we can produce art that is in um, 
uh, you know, it kind of responds to and, and interrogates the underlying assumptions yep. behind those stories. Yeah, and I don't yeah. think this is even new. I think this has been going on for of course, centuries yeah. and millennia. Yeah. Um, it's easy for us as immigrants. Uh, I think, especially when you're an immigrant, you're holding on to the culture that you just left, and mm. your parents are holding on to that, and then they try to, you know, they come from India where they're surrounded by it, and then they come to this foreign land where, mm. where it's, like, very sparse, and then they want to hold on to it. Um, and anecdotally, I've always heard people... Um, when they go back to India or people go back to India, it's almost sometimes like we as Indian Americans are more like traditional or cult, like exposed to a lot yeah. more traditional culture um, because in India it's it's evolving and constantly changing um, versus we're kind of holding on to a snapshot from the 60s or 70s maybe. Exactly, exactly. I've noticed that as well that so a lot of times our generation is becoming more devout than even people in India, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. But also the problematics of um, kind of like when we go to, at least in my own experience, I think we had a resonance with that, with that growing up when I would go to the Hindu temple, uh, a lot of the priests weren't equipped to, they just knew the ritual. Exactly. They were able to conduct the ritual, but they weren't necessarily able to articulate or explain, well, what is this? Where is this coming from? What is the philosophy? What is the... We were very much exposed to the bhakti tradition, the yep. devotional tradition, right. but very little to the yonic or the intellectual, the philosophical tradition. Right. So if you talk a little bit about kind of your exposure to the bhakti and how you're able to bring in that uh, philosophical ideas and, and all yeah, this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think um, like I grew up in uh, uh, a household, um, half North Indian, half South Indian, which maybe we'll get into later. Yeah. But uh, my... Uh, my dad's side is South Indian and, and, and Brahmin. And so like I grew up learning my religion through the, the lens of uh, South Indian Brahmin culture, which, which is known to kind of be the keeper of a lot of, a lot, a lot of the traditions and the rituals. So um, I started with that, uh, that com and then I think as I got older, um, started learning more about the different philosophies we learn in the Gita about the different, there's, there's, you know, uh, uh, there's bhakti and there's um, I'm blanking on right now, but you know there's there's different yeah, ways of worship, yeah. right? So bhakti is the way of, of devoting yourself to God, um, kind of on a personal level, which I find I found as I've go, as I grew older and started learning about other religions, um, a very common thread. So I, I feel like there's a a very uh, when you think about Christianity and your it's uh, about your personal relationship with God, uh, you know, through Christ as a savior. Um, similarly, people worship. You know, if you're a, a devotee of Krishna, it's like Krishna is your savior, and you're, you're, mm. you're you know, there's there's a lot of a um, uh, lot of worship around having that personal relationship with Krishna, whether he's your friend or there's there's Krishna as like the baby Krishna, which is similar to like mm. you know, Madonna and, and Jesus, baby Jesus, yeah. and um, but having that like a like a personal bond with rather than like a very um, impersonal God that's maybe more um, intellectual, which mm. you can also worship in Hinduism that way as well. Mm. Um, but I think, um, I think the two work together. Like wisdom yeah. has to come into play that we're able to, you know, you're not just doing, I, I, in my own personal belief, I think that, you know, playing this, this idea of blind faith, right. Which I, I think is, has its function in specific circumstances. Mm -hmm. You know, there are times when we're in the moment and we can't be working things out in our head. Right. But there are times and places for us to sit down and, and really negotiate with our intellect and right. really think about what is my experience. And, you know, there's time and place for everything, in other yeah. words, you know. And I think definitely, you know, people underestimate 
you know, the value of blind faith, but also they overestimate too at times. You know, I don't yeah, know. Sure. It's just question sure. finding that right note. You know, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, I, I think the beauty of of maybe uh, Indian culture, like Hindu culture, like the, the pan South Asian, the religions of 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 the subcontinent, um, is that there's different ways to worship. Mm. Um, like we, you know, in, in Hinduism, they outline different ways you can worship. So if you're someone that is more heart driven, you can be more of a devotional. If you're a little more intellectually driven, you can you can achieve kind of this the the oneness with the with God or the divine power, or the divine you know whatever you believe in. Um, you can can achieve that uh, through whatever way uh, best suits you. For me, I think I found um, I think I think getting back to the top of, of growing up here, mm. I feel like I was exposed to obviously the rituals, but even sometimes the philosophy became really esoteric and much more around. Um, uh, I don't like ungrounded. Or yeah, it's, little, you know, yeah, you talk about draw, reincarnation. Yeah. You talk about yeah, um, you know, your duty, dharma, and karma kind of concepts. Yeah, but how does that impact you in your like relationship with your friends at school or your yeah. your relationship with a with a spouse or you know things like that? Um, and I think I, I found um, as I as I started exposing myself to uh, other other traditions, Buddhism, um, for, first and foremost, that was kind of the first way I, I branched out, uh, not leaving Hinduism, just like kind of opening myself up to other things in Buddhism. Um, there's often a lot, uh, there's a lot of Western teachers that have learned, uh, gone to like Southeast Asia and learned, and they come back here and they're able to teach it to an American audience. And I think I realized, yes, I'm Indian, but I'm also American and I have a very specific uh, cultural upbringing by growing up in this country. Um, so while I can understand certain things uh, from an Indian perspective, an immigrant, like an Indian, someone from India can explain something, I can understand it. Um, if someone's able to speak to me as an American, I can actually understand it a little bit more personally. Um, so I think there are a lot of these teachers I would listen to podcasts and, and like learn about, you know, Buddhist thought. And um, then I got really into uh, reading um, Sufi poetry. So Rumi, um, that's kind of my, my exposure to, um, Islam, the mystical tradition. Yeah, 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 mystical tradition, really rich actually in South Asia as well. Mm. Um, but I think that the the poetry of of Sufism, uh, at least Rumi's poetry, really reminded me of, of that Bhakti tradition where it's yeah. all about the ecstasy of uh, the relationship with God. You know, like you know, he the way he writes about his experience with God is it can be like a lover, like a friend, again, like all these different different ways. Um, and then later on, I also uh, through friends got exposed to Christianity and learned, uh, you know, learned about the Bible and how to read different different books. Um, and even there, there are a lot of things that really, um, the way the, the Book of Psalms, you know, in the Old Testament, a lot of those the poetry there uh, to me reminded me of the Sufi poetry. Also reminded me of of Bhakti poetry, and I just mm. found these synergies. Um, and again, I would listen to sermons where, like, I think that a lot of them would be everyday. Uh, they would somehow be more applicable to my life. Um, and it's just it's just the message, you know. I think I would I would love to see um, someone do that in Hinduism, where it's it's not just focused. Where you're able to really apply, and maybe it's there, but I just never grew up with that kind of um, uh, exposure or that kind of uh, talk available, where someone could, you know, guide me on maybe like you know, if you guide me on a modern uh, how should I engage a relationship with my girlfriend or my spouse, mm. right? Like uh, I think. There's a lot of there are a lot of uh, Christian sermons that talk about yeah. you know, what that looks like. Is, where can we find a Hindu a Hindu 
sermon to talk about that. Yeah. Uh, I think um, because it is a big part of our experience, but I think a lot of times Hinduism, won't, the, the spiritual stuff only talks about attaining, you know, uh, moksha, moksha or moksha, like, yeah. you know, like the attachment, you know, and, and freeing yourself from the cycle of birth and redeath, birth, rebirth, sorry, um, cycle of death and rebirth. Uh, but we don't talk about, how, you know, how do you, um, how can we get it more into like what is, it means to have meaningful relationships uh, in the world, uh, being a meaningful contributor to this world. And I, I think there's different ways you can get that message. And Yeah, so important, though. So important, essential to be able to um, conduct our daily lives, be uh, in touch and, and mindful and, and be in a community. So the community is something I, I think came up um, in uh, some of our pre-interview questions about how, kind of like whether we do things for ourselves or when we do things for others and uh, connecting with that spiritual community and having uh, the kind of the tensions between, um, and we were discussing it in this, in what you were saying is kind of touching in on what we call, what it calls tribalism and kind of like this idea of, you know, that people feel like rigid about, oh, I'm Christian, I show me read Christian texts, or I'm Buddhist, I show me read Buddhist texts, et cetera. And that, uh, having a dialogue with the communities, inter-community dialogue, is really the, the main foundation for, I think, your work and all of our work, you know? Yeah, yeah go ahead and talk a little bit more about um, kind of how you're able to bring um, uh, also that modern sensibility, you know? We think of this as modern, but also a more compassionate sensibility. I like, right. I think about, it. you know, we, um, in the cultural dialogue, we have, like, the ideas of feminism always been there, and yeah. I think feminism is such an important uh, philosophy and topic to bring up gender equality and we touched a little bit on that uh but if we go a little bit more into kind of like um you had a we were talking a little bit about the blog article about radha's mistress so yeah. talk a little bit about that yeah 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 um and that one uh that's i guess also a, you know a kind of a feminist reinterpretation of of music so so radha's mistress is a piece i made um, and you can find it on youtube if you google radha's mistress r a d h a s uh, r a d h a uh, apostrophe S, Radha's mistress. So um, uh, Krishna and Radha are this divine couple, another divine couple like Rama and Sita that I mentioned earlier, who are worshipped um, uh, by Hindus everywhere. Uh, and interestingly, Radha is actually not Krishna's wife, but he's just her, uh, his lover. Um, mm. And and so a lot of uh, there's there's a lot of poetry around this this divine relationship. Um, and trip, uh, specifically in North Indian classical music, a lot of the um, in vocal music when you're singing a song, uh, a lot of the the poetry is around uh, the love, uh, this relationship, right? And um, so you know, I've learned many many songs around Krishna and Radha and Krishna. Uh, one of them that I grew up learning uh, to, uh, has lyrics that are very typical, which is around Radha is um, being, you know. He, she's she's in love with Krishna and missing him or, or being teased by him. She's pining for him when he's away. Um, or, or in some cases, she's um, like he's kind of she's trying to do her own thing and he's just kind of being naughty and teasing her and, and kind of getting her to uh, you know it's a euphemism for you know kind of sexual love play in, in some sense. But in, even that is a um, a metaphor for our love with God. It's, it's God. Um, so Krishna kind of teasing and, and prodding Radha is, is a metaphor for God kind of teasing and prodding us spiritually to drawing him closer mm. uh, to sorry drawing us closer to, to him or her right so that's that's what the um, the metaphor is um, so in in this text uh, 
the words that are used are around uh, Radha feeling very um, um, just teased, maybe kind of the weaker sex, just portrayed that way in, in, the, in the lyrics. Um, she's like, what, what can I do? He's kind of being, he's insisting, uh, insisting on what exactly, right? And, you know, is, uh, the words, I looked up the, the traditional Hindi poetry, which is different from spoken Hindi now. And I didn't grow up in India, so I didn't really study this. So like, it took me some time to, to do the research, but like the insisting, Krishna insisting could be also defined as him forcing himself in some way. Um, not exactly, but th I think there are undertones of, uh, a patriarchal culture again there where like men can kind of have their way uh, with women and I kind of wanted to flip that on its head and I wanted to look at um, other ways that Radha's worship I, I bought a book around the divine goddess and like how goddesses have been worshipped and they talked about Radha being um, really worshipped as this divine equal uh, this, this kind of divine counterpart um, and and a worship of Radha being a deep acceptance of of sexuality and female mm. sexuality, which is now you know now in our culture, especially you know Indian culture, very taboo subject to talk about. Yeah. Right? Um, so I wanted to flip that. Um, so so musically, I like I, I sang um, the classical piece, but I, I put like really heavy guitars and electronic music, and it to kind of evoke a real strong passion. Um, and, and then visually, I, I used a lot of. Uh, traditional silk paintings you'll see in India of, of Radha and Krishna, and there's there's actually a lot of paintings of them in lovemaking positions. But I, um, uh, you know, traditionally she will be on her back, and I wanted her to show show dominance. So if you watch mm. the video, you'll see interspersions of it where she's I, I rotated the picture so she's on the top and kind mm. of having her way and having um, so she's not just a, a passive receiver, but she's mm. like equally engaged in this like love in this in this union. Um, and then it, the, the video ends with them kind of facing each other as equals rather than um, her being, uh, again, the, the, the weaker sex. Yeah. And so I was trying to visually, you know, we're in a visual medium. Um, obviously, so, so part of it's portrayed by the, the audio that you hear. Part of it's portrayed by the video. Um, and it's not perfect because at the end of the day, there's still, I can't address everything in a two-minute piece. Yeah. But, you know, there's things like Radha herself, it, uh People don't worship Radha without Krishna. People worship Krishna without Radha all the time. Mm. Um, but she's still kind of known through him and doesn't have her own full identity um, and not worship that way. So there's just a lot of you know inconsistencies. But um, you know, I wanted to start somewhere and, and take this piece. And also, I think learning classical music, especially here, I, I think a lot of times in India, people don't even pay attention to the words and, and what they're singing. But... Uh, even more when you're learning it here as an immigrant where it's not, you're not surrounded by the culture. You are trying to uh, soak up as much as you can, but you, you, you won't understand the lyrics fully. You don't have it. You don't, you're almost more, I, I find myself at least more focused on the music and less focused on the words mm -hmm. um, because the music was easier for me and the words. Uh, so is this, a, uh, is how does the song rather's mistress? Yeah. Is it just instrumental? Or does it have? It's got vocals. It's got vocals. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So maybe we'll listen a little bit to that. We'll take a moment to listen to that, and then we'll continue the conversation. Um, let's see. Yeah. 
Wonderful, wonderful. Thank so, you. Um, yeah. So, and you know, I didn't. Um, one thing I forgot to mention is Radha is always uh, portrayed as Krishna's mistress, mm. and so I flipped the title, calling it Radha's mistress, because it's about her taking control of of this uh, this union and not just being a passive you know, person again. Um, there's actually yeah. no word for like there's no equivalent of a mistress, a male mistress, really. Oh right, right, like, yeah, yeah. Thinking, I couldn't find a word, but you know what we'll call. It. So I, I put. I remember when I posted this, some you know one of my uncles was like, "Oh, it's Radha is the mistress, not Krishna." But I was like, "Well, no, I'm trying to flip, <laughs> yeah. flip the paradigm here." Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. Yeah, I was looking up the uh, like six months ago or something. I was trying to find the word as well. I was like, "Wait a minute, what is, <laughs> what is the really the you know?" It's, yeah. it's hard to figure out what that word is. Yeah. But I don't think there is a word. But uh, also, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, North and South India. We were touching a little bit on that before. Yeah. And uh, people don't realize that uh, within India, you know, there's so there's like, I think, 23 languages. Yeah, and so. there's like more, a number right. of different, sub, you know, dialects and all that. There's like 23 major, you know, yeah. defining a language is like yeah. having, it fits the definition of a language. So 23 languages. Yeah, those are recognized, yeah. in fact. And there's even more that are like not officially recognized. Oh, wow, and, yeah. And stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and each area has its own culture going a little distance. You have like another different, wholly different interpretation and a totally right. different culture. And North and South is divided, I think, a little bit more than any other culture that I can think of, except maybe, maybe Italians have north and south Italian, but i think it's as deep yeah a, a difference yeah but I, about that. I view india you know the south the subcontinent you know pakistan india and bangladesh nepal sri lanka right that's kind of the subcontinent mm. um i view that as as europe right so mm. europe has all these different states uh all these different countries nation states right and um really india was that as well and then under british rule became one united political entity um and it's kind of remained that way, except for some of the partitions that have occurred. So it's really a comp- a complex tapestry of cultures. And so uh, I, I mentioned that my mom is North Indian from uh, Uttar Pradesh, Hindi-speaking, Hindi, many people know. Uh, my dad is uh, Tamil-speaking from the south of India. Um, Tamil is spoken primarily in, in Tamil Nadu. He's actually from the neighboring state of Kerala. Um, and then he grew up in Calcutta, which where they speak Bengali. So, um, again, so I, have, I grew up with like all these different uh, cultures. I, I I think it's like growing up with one parent being Swedish and one parent being Greek, right? Yeah. It's like yes, there's there's this European. If you were so that's, that was your background, you would have a European background, but really your your two families would be very different in some ways, mm-hmm. and in some ways are similar. So, um, for me, you know, uh, Hindi is an Indo-European language. You know, so it has it's related to English, it's related to French, German, uh, Persian. That that's a whole group of languages that it encompasses. Tamil is a completely different language. Uh, it's an, it's part of the Dravidian language, which is an, a language isolate family, uh, unrelated to anything we know today. And it's part and th- those languages. The speakers of those languages are are now concentrated in the south of India. Um, so that's the first you know distinction right off the bat. Uh, then culturally. Um, Know, the kind of food we eat. So the food you you have in Indian restaurants in America are, is primarily North Indian and primarily a specific kind of North Indian cooking that's suited for restaurants. Mm. Um, you know, and the, you'll have a little bit of South Indian. If you ever if anyone's ever had dosas, that's a very traditionally South Indian. The, the kind of Indian crepes, um, <clears throat> but the kind of foods we eat are different. Uh, the way uh, the way we 
worship. You know, the both will, you can be Hindu from either part of the country. Um, uh, but the way you would worship might be different. The gods you'd worship, the the kind of rituals you do would be different. Um, and, and North and South is actually very simplistic because in, in North India, there's there's different kinds. Uh, I think that that divide has to do with kind of the linguistic grouping of, of Indo-European is kind of North and then Dravidian is kind of South, but really even within East and West and like, you know, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of diversity, you know, within that as well. Yeah. Um, you think again, going back to Europe, you can think of Germanic speaking uh, Nordic kind of languages and you can think of the Romance languages and you know, maybe you can group those together, but there's a lot of differences. So I, I think when I, in my experience of not only growing up as an Indian American, like as, as one a different culture uh, from like maybe the majority uh, white culture here. Um, I also kind of think of it, I felt almost biracial in a way because mm. of my parents being from different backgrounds. So within the Indian community, when I interacted with other Indian people that were usually of just one, yeah. um, one kind of Indian, just so to speak, <laughs> I, I would feel like I was you know straddling different worlds as exactly, well. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and even uh, within the Deity Pantheon, <laughs> you know, the, the, when you go to India, um, you know they have uh, specific local right uh, deities that they have little shrines to and yep. all this kind of thing. And the the diversity within Hinduism, the Sanatana Dharma, the Vedic traditions, can be quite vast because they have the Vishwites, uh, people who follow Vishnu primarily, yeah. and Shaivites, people who follow Shiva primarily. Vishnu being the god of creation and uh, preserver, preserver rather, sorry, and uh, Shiva being god of destruction, and then Brahma being the creator. Um, so the goddess cults as well. Yeah, and the goddess cults, all these different, uh, you know, Santa Dharma, the Hinduism, the Vedic traditions are so, um, it's so diverse, you know, all these different Vedas, all these different teachings. Sometimes even it feels like it's contradictory. I mean, even yeah. though I guess at some level, you know, we're able to, you know, um, you know, a real scholar or someone who's able to navigate it, having that compass is able to find that trajectory which connects those co seeming contradictions. But um, navigating the Vedic traditions can be quite difficult, Definitely. and especially, yeah, uh, yeah, and um, yeah. Just tell us a little bit more about kind of um, your practice and, and in regards to um, the uh, navigating that and yeah. bringing in, yeah. I, I think um, I think it when I think about that experience, I feel like it it it's been an exploration of of belonging. Where do I belong? Right. Mm. So um, you know, I I grew up. Uh, because my mom is North Indian, I grew up, and my dad, uh, I grew up speaking Hindi. My dad speaks very good Hindi too, so uh, it was an easy. Um, I grew up, I learned a little bit of Tamil, but that kind of faded off. Um, mm -hmm. I can follow maybe more than I understand, but I basically, I feel very comfortable. Uh, in 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 a family's home where the Hindi is being spoken, yeah. Um, I also feel comfortable where Tamil is being spoken, but I always felt like I don't understand everything fully, and like. Uh, I think when I'm when I'm in a South Indian household, I would or with my South Indian side of my family, sometimes I would feel like uh, I'm trying to fit in, or I, I want to feel like I can belong more because I don't understand the language. Um, and it, conversely, when I'm amongst North Indians, sometimes I felt like um, I wanted them to understand more about South India. Because I, actually, I think sometimes when you're when you're from one part of the country, you don't have as much exposure um, to the other parts. And then I think North Indian culture has a little bit more dominance. In general, you, uh, we know all know Bollywood, and and that's part of North Indian culture. Yeah. Um, and so even the what what people were exposed to in, in my my experience growing up here, the North Indians had probably a narrow exposure to 
South Indian culture, unless you like, you know, had friends and stuff. Um, in South India, as I, as I mentioned earlier, no one to really, um, especially the the Brahmin, which is like the, the higher caste or the the priest the, the priestly caste in in our in our culture. That's where my my dad's side is from. Um, so people in that culture are known to maintain the tradition. So I think mm. that the view of a lot of um, South Indians is like the preserver of those traditions. So any kind of cultural show might open up with a a classical dance from South Indian Bharatanatyam. Yeah. Um, and that would be like the only that plus maybe uh, someone singing a very traditional classical song would be the only representation you'd see from South India. Mm. And then everything else would be a lot, lot more like all like the fun stuff would be uh, like Punjabi, like Bhangra or Garba, Gujarati, like these dances and like and the dance, the sticks, is this, the, yeah, that's yeah. the Garba, Dandiya, that's Garba, yeah, yeah, Dandia, yeah, it's all from North India, um, and a lot of and then a lot of Bollywood and and all that, and so it's like it almost portrays as, um, you know, if you're North Indian, you might just see like the South Indian culture as being more, um, just traditional, and that's all they have. Or at least that's that's how I felt. You know, maybe yeah. that's not what people think. That's that's how I felt, and I probably felt that because I lived in both worlds. And I wanted to see. I wanted people to see more more sides of South Indian music. Uh, one of my biggest musical influences of all time is A. R. Rahman, the uh, the uh, famous Indian film composer, and he, he's uh, from South India originally. And he he's transformed all of you know. He's transformed Bollywood. He's transformed just Indian music in general. Um, and so a lot of his music, you know, especially when he, in the '90s and stuff, where uh, he'd make the same movie would be made in in Tamil and Hindi, and it's the same word, the same song would be in both languages. Mm. And so I remember my first attempt at kind of navigating both worlds was like, I would sing a lot of Hindi songs at Indian cultural shows, but then I started doing things where I would sing the same song, one of his songs, half of it in Hindi and half of it in Tamil, and and try to bridge, like just try to show, uh, you know, people that there's more to South Indian culture than just. Yeah, the, the rituals and just the uh, you know, and there's and and I think in that I started uh, learning because I I think my upbringing was in a narrow view of this Brahmin family, but there's there's a lot there's of non Brahmin. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of other aspects mm. of South Indian. And I started singing in Tamil shows, and I don't like I sing Tamil, but I don't speak mm. it. I don't understand it. But um, in that, I got exposed to other aspects of what it means to be South Indian. Yeah, um, which is great, and I think um, again exploring my heritage. Uh, in those two those two strains is has been useful and and helped me to see, I think understand diversity in, in a different way. And also, it's important uh, to note that you know each one of these um, systems uh, within South and North India is like complete in and of itself. Right. Like they're they've got their thing, they've got their whole complete system from beginning to end. Yep. And it's not like it's I mean you know like. We, when we dip into one aspect, and this is something I wanted to bring into in Western culture about what we think about as we start to kind of get the last 10 minutes. Um, you know, Western culture has been a lot of talk about cultural appropriation and kind of dipping into or sampling uh, from these complete traditions and just taking out like, you know, one thing, you know, take out one thing, a Kali, or we'll take mm -hmm. out and we'll just kind of popularize it in the Temple of Doom or something and, mm -hmm. and kind of completely change its meaning. And then, uh, and then there's a lot of criticism of that, you know, saying that this is taken out of context. We don't want people to think that this represents, right. especially when there's a lack of representation yep. in Western media. Yep. The only exposure people have to um, South Indian or subcontent is through, you know, their first exposure maybe. Yeah. It was the Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And then, you know, it's very Ooh. upsetting, but at the same time, we have to understand that this is how 
cultures interact. You yeah. know, they kind of sample, they take out something, and they kind of grab something, and they're for like, sure. this connects with me. But then realizing for our listeners that there's a lot more to learn and a lot more. Don't, don't just assume or don't just... Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I think historically, cultures are always doing this, so mm. uh, it's not a surprise like that it's, it's happening. I, I think it's much more in our face because media is so mass, yeah. um, you know, and, and there are problematic issues with representation and, and how, you know, you know, like the, the famous, other famous example is Apu from The Simpsons. Yeah. Um, you know, I love the character as a kid because it's like, oh, there's one Indian guy on, on TV. He's not even voiced by an Indian person. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's uh, Harry Kondabolu, who's famous, like he did this documentary uh, about the Pooh. I forget what he's, what's uh, called. Problem with the Pooh. Yeah, yeah, Problem with the Pooh. Yeah. It was just great. I saw yeah, it. Yeah, I saw that too. Uh, yeah. And uh, it's great. Like, I think, uh, it's it's uh i grew up i remember one kid in high school like his whole knowledge on indian was indian people was like mm. based on the character and like yeah. he would ask me questions which were not my experience <laughs> and i was like like no like yeah like anyway so yeah. um I, I think representation is important i i don't think there's anything wrong with sampling things as yeah. long as you do it respectfully and yeah. um consciously mindfully yeah. mindfully and you should have people you know ha- have indian people in the room like we talk mm. like you know they talk about in in hollywood and or in tv like the writer's room and like are there enough women in the writer's room are there enough you know african-americans in the writing room to like when they're when they're trying to tell these stories to tell all perspectives right so how many um how many if you're going to include an indian theme do you have the right people like i I, one of my other pet peeves is if you're watching like um you're watching a a movie where there's like a south asian person and they they say that so they they put the wrong language in there or like the Mm. script is like you know, it should be an Arabic script, but they're showing like an, an Indian script or, yeah. or, or like these small little, little details. Yeah. Like they just don't take, take the time to, and I've heard, you know, people talk about that too, but I think getting the details right. Um, on the, on yeah. the flip side, I do, I do feel hopeful. There's a lot more you know, South Asian representation in like primetime TV and movies. It's, it, it's coming up with a lot, a lot of, mm. you know, well-known names. So I'm, I'm, I'm feeling positive about those kind of things changing. Yeah, yeah, I've been starting to listen, watch uh, Patriot Act. Yeah. Namaj, oh, yeah. Namaj, yeah, yeah, that's really great, and I think it's so important. Uh, he even had the joke about how South Asians are not just uh, not just limited to uh, doctors and lawyers; yeah. they can be criminals yes. too. You know, I love that. that I love bit. that joke because it just shows that the um, what is it called? The perfect uh, ideal Asian, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the, the model minority, model minority yeah, yeah. is to be undermined as well. Positive. Racial stereotypes are just as bad or just as yeah. crippling as negative. It is actually, I mean, yeah. because uh, there are a lot of Asian, Amer- you know, mm. if you think about Asian American, which includes a lot of cultures, there's a lot of, you know, I think Indians and Chinese are kind of the big, uh, the big components of that, known to be also highly educated and like mm. really driven. But there's a lot of other um, cultures where they're starting from a place of more poverty, poverty in this country. A lot of other mm. subcultures. Um, that need help, but th- when you're when you're looked at as a model minority, people don't think that Asians need help, but Asian yeah. Americans do need help uh, in those um, in those spaces. Mm. So um, I'll play one more song as we start. To, I'll play an instrumental so we can talk over it. But uh, do you have a, a call out? Would you like to play some Indian blues, maybe? Or uh, yeah, that one that one's a little more um, noisy, but we could, yeah. we could put it on. Okay, yeah. yeah so Indian blues, it's uh, it's me singing the blue scale uh, with you know, with Indian style singing, and then with a kind of dubstep that beat. So it's got twelve bar blues uh, chord progression. Good, good. So um, 
This is Radio Free Brooklyn, True to Power Show. Radio Free Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. To help support our mission, we invite you to make a one-time donation, a monthly pledge at radioforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Every cent helps us to continue to stay on air, so please support independent community media by pledging whatever you can afford. All contributions are tax deductible to the full extent of law. Again, that's radioforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Um, also, we're proud to announce that we'll be launching an after-school program for local teenagers uh, in 2019 to learn media literacy through media making using a hands-on approach guided by local professionals. If you'd be interested in participating or donating to this program, please go to radioforbrooklyn.org slash after-school. And remember, all donations, again, are tax-deductible. So, great, great. Thanks so much. And um, we still have five more minutes. Yeah. Um, what else is coming up for you? The uh, We had so many different threads. There's so many different things we have to talk about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you know, I was like... going to go back to Hassan Minaj because uh, you mentioned him. Yeah. I think he, uh, you know, big fan of his. Um, his his show, Homecoming King, on, on Netflix, when I watched yeah. it, uh, I think what struck me the most and really helped when I talked about the sense of belonging, like where do I belong, he, I saw him. I saw him in his act. Um, he, obviously, it's all in English, but he would not hesitate to speak in Hindi. Yeah. And like, and, and there's this beautiful visuals in the back where like he would say certain phrases in Hindi, um, and then like it would be written in Hindi as well. Um, and that's the first time I'd seen, um, like an Indian American like just fully go on. I feel like when you're an immigrant, like if you're being Indian American, I would everything would have to be in English. Mm. Um, and you know you just wouldn't like either. Either you're doing things in English or you're just doing things in in your language, and and there's no like com- combining the two. Yeah. And so uh, I think seeing him not hesitate to like bring his Indianness in and, and speak, and then he does that even in um in Patriot Act, he'll just like use Indian words and like he'll define mm-hmm. it for the <laughs> for the American audience, like what those words mean later on. But he'll just like talk in it, and that that made me, you know, I think that that's kind of who I am, but I never really um uh never f- figured out how I could embrace or combine the two. So I, I never used to sing in English. I would only sing in, in Indian languages because that's where I was trained in, in singing Indian style. Uh, and I didn't know how to, like, I don't, I'm not like an R&B singer. I'm not like, an, you know, I don't have that kind of voice, but mm. um, you know, maybe if I practice, I, I could try that. But I, I have like a distinctly, distinctively Indian style of singing. Um, but I think when I saw how he was able to fuse that, it kind of gave me this encouragement of, um, if if he can, if he can bring in his like Indian language into his comedy act, that's in English. Mm. Um, can I bring in my Indian style singing into an, an English language? And actually, so the the Always Truth track that we opened up with, it's all in English, um, but the mel- the vocalizations are just very Indian, and yeah. that, that was kind of um, you know I, I would credit Hassan Minaj's like just that that his his act. I, I would credit that with inspiring me to explore that a little bit further and, and figuring out my place because the truth is I would I would only write songs sometimes I would, I would compose songs but write it in Hindi um, but now as you know like it's not my first language and actually now mm-hmm. like the language is evolving um, with time and I'm not like really up to date with that so yeah. my language is English how can I bring that um, again straddling these different worlds bring in my uh, my musical sensibilities with with the English language that's something I'm exploring now and and to continue to explore yeah we're talking about like growing up i also sang bhajans in the community 
um, mm-hmm. by just doing spiritual devotional songs. And in the temples, we we sing it. They have a leader. I'd be the leader. I'd sing the first yeah. line, and the audience would repeat. Um, it was a very powerful experience. Yeah. Um, to be part of that community and listen to you know listen to yourself singing and then having the audience a call and response. Echo and response and such. And it's really great. I think that um, we have a little bit of that in the gospel tradition. Yeah. And I think that that's definitely a, a correlation. And that community is so important to build and develop, you know, definitely. to feel that power of the community, which is something, you know, um, sometimes is lacking, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and again, that's, that's great. Like that, that call, call and response, known to be a very like uh, African, um, in African music, it's a very com- like a common thing, yeah. which is why you see it in gospel music, uh, with the descendants of uh, people from West Africa. Um but again, that that that's such a powerful way of building community, and, and we have that in our satsang, which is like I think we're referring to with a, with a, you know, in Indian spiritual traditions where mm-hmm. there is a leader singing, and then the the, the group group responds and sings along with it. So, where can uh, audiences find out more about you? Yeah, they can follow me on all the social media platforms at, at GV Tunes. Um, I'm I'm most active on Instagram, but I'm on Facebook and Twitter uh, and YouTube as well. Uh, also, my website is www.gvtunes.com. Um, so GV is for my initials, Gaurav Inkateshwars, or GV Tunes. Um, so that's where you can find me. Yeah, I definitely hope people will check that out and continue listening to the Truth to Power show every Monday at 8 a.m. Thank Thanks you. so much. Thank you, guys.